and welcome to Killer Serials. This is Tony Jones. This is Ryan Parker. And Ryan, what about those Dodgers with the COVID? Let me tell you, um, you know, I don't follow baseball. You know this, but I am keenly you, aware that you like I even, live. You like even more slower, but more boring games than baseball, a.k.a. Um, soccer. It's more slower. Get out of here. Hey, I learned one thing last week when the Dodgers won the World Series that I'm sure you may know or you may have intuited when you lived here, but they did not win the World Series while you were here, so you didn't have this experience. But, buddy, forget the Lakers. Los Angeles is Dodger town. Yeah. The Lakers and the Dodgers won championships about two or three Mm -hmm. weeks apart. Uh, obviously, here during COVID, it's messed up the sports the season schedules. So they won mm-hmm. back-to-back championships in, in different sports. The reaction to those championships could not have been more different. Really? Three straight hours of fireworks across <laughs> the city. Drove okay. my poor dog crazy. We had to we had to give a, a sedative to our dog oh, as we usually do on New Year's. New Year's and 4th of July, we use that to sedate him. But people in the streets, all good-natured, um, and by all accounts, not a lot of, a lot of, you know, quote-unquote, rioting or whatever like that, but tons and tons of fireworks and celebration well into the night. Uh, that just, quite frankly, did not happen when the Lakers won. So, really, Detroit, uh, Dodger Blue is, is baked in into this city. So that was kind of neat to be a part of, I, you know, just as like sports yeah, and culture, yeah. and, you know, really liking LA like we do and um, it having kind of become home for us. So it, that was kind of interesting to see, but yeah, as a, as a, an event actually turned on the local news to watch some of the celebrations. And so it was a, it was a wild night for sure. Cool. Well, you know, who did win the world series when I lived in LA? The Minnesota Twins. There you go. So you had one. That was the last time the they won at 1991. <laughs> Where were you? <laughs> what bar were you they at won the, when they won? They won the first. They they won. They won the first one when I was in college in '87, and all the Minnesotans on my college campus all gathered because you know back in the day, there was one TV per dorm. It was in the basement, like in the common room in the basement of the dorm. And we all gathered down there and watched every t- all seven games. And then in 91, I actually lived in a house with four other guys at when I was at seminary. And we all watched it there. And a bunch of Minnesotans from the seminary came over and watched it. I'll never forget. I mean, my housemate, Dave Sellers, still a friend to this day, a pre- Presbyterian pastor up in the Pacific Northwest. He, he would do the Wahoo Wah Braves, Atlanta Braves chant, you know, that whole deal. And he, when, when Ken Herbeck, okay, Ken Herbeck did not pull Ron Gant off of first. Ron Gant's momentum pulled himself off of first, and Ken Herbeck was smart enough to apply a tag. Wink, wink. Okay, Dave was so upset, he went up to his room, and he could not watch the rest of the World Series, even though it was his team. He was a Braves fan, so... Anyways, I have some pretty vivid memories of that. Those are those are fun times. But I missed out on the hometown celebrations here in the Twin Cities when the Twins won in 87 and 91, which is still a regret, you know. 
So, so Tony, but this I've was well on. before. This was well, but no, you haven't. This was well before you and I knew each other. And, it, you know, <laughs> I mean, I joke about stuff like this all the time. You know, all those stories like when you look up at this at the moon, we'll be looking at the same moon. You and yeah. I were looking up at the same moon those many years ago because I was a uh, by proxy, a Braves fan. Uh-huh, uh, being okay. in Mississippi is the closest professional sports team we had next to the Saints. And I mean, we were locked in every pitch in the, uh, you know, watching it from our house after school, you know, depending on the time, you know, and late into the night. So I was right there with you watching those. Yeah. uh, Just a little different scenario. It's funny how many people are Braves fans all over the South, uh, you know, and it's kind of the same like twins, twins territory goes you know not only into western wisconsin but goes all the way through the dakotas and iowa because there's no other you know the closest major league baseball teams are in denver and chicago and milwaukee so there's a lot of yeah growing up like i said we had the saints about an hour and a half away ish and that was pre-pelicans or hornets Uh uh-huh yep uh and then if you go west it's you know dallas the Cowboys, the Rangers, and, you know, East, it was the Braves. I mean, obviously, Florida's yeah, their own thing because, yeah. you know, they've got Tampa Bay and Miami. But, you know, for, for South Carolina, Georgia, uh, Alabama, Tennessee, Mississippi, yeah, I mean, that's that's it. Well, uh, now, now we that we're off on, on a top- tangent there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now that we're on the topic of Rectify 407, <laughs> let's talk about it. It's all, it's all uh, television. Hey, man, you know what? We are at the penultimate episode. Do, do you know what, Ray? Uh, it, ca- it felt like to me last night when we watched this. This episode, Ray, is say, Ray McKinnon is saying, ladies and gentlemen, please put your trays in an upright and locked position. Buckle your seat belts. Yeah. We're landing the plane. It. You just felt it. Fe- you feel it. And I thought it was beautiful. I thought there were four or five moments that were some of the best of the series. You know, I think, okay, let's, the, the, the title of the episode is Happy Unburdening. And I think this has been the most thematically tight of all the, you know, 29 episodes we have thus far watched it there have always been kind of thematic elements in, in an episode you know we'll see something I, i've said it before like boy this episode was really all about the couples like all the married couples coming together and, and going apart and struggling for this and fighting for that but this one it's just like everyone is unburdening everyone is and and that's really been the story of season four isn't it is that Daniel moves to Nashville to his halfway house after he's been exiled from Polly. And now everyone is like, holy shit, what do we do now? Our entire lives have been consumed with this. I mean, good Lord, Hannah's mother unburdens herself. I mean, we don't know what was in the card that she sent to Janet, but but one can assume that she she's somehow trying to make amends or whatever. Um, Everyone that the old sheriff is unburdening himself. Daniel's in therapy, unburdening himself. Uh, 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 Amantha's old 
you know, high school friend whom she hasn't spoken to in decades comes yeah. back and says, you really hurt me. Um, but you know, yeah. I want on and on. So you... I, it, it was very, very like the- thematically contained, uh, which I thought was interesting and made it, made it, I, I enjoyed moving from scene to scene once you got that, you're like, oh, every scene is going to be about these people unburdening themselves from things that have been holding them back, even if that means selling old shit on eBay. I want to ask you about two characters that I think may complicate this theme or get your take on how they uh, embody this theme, because uh, I agree with you for the most part. Amantha seems like we're back to the old Amantha. I thought that her interaction with Bobby Dean, understandable, but that's like first season Amantha. Her encounter with her mother in the attic felt a little aggressive, a little uncalled for. And then finally, uh, so I want to hear you talk about that. And then, and then the last thing, because this will segue into some other characters, Ted to me feels like, second season janet uh ted is he give he 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 is getting everything from these characters especially teddy and janet ted we'll come back to this one i know but teddy's teddy admitting to ted that he's getting divorced and then janet at the end you know really making the effort going into the bathroom you know washing his back and like he still he just gives these one word answers or these very evasive answers. It's almost like he's in a coma, you know, or he's kind of in this daze where like all he can manage is one or two words. It seems like he's so lifeless as compared to him and like season one and two. So those are my two things. Yeah. Amantha, how do you feel about Amantha and Ted fitting into that theme? Well, Amantha, it was what's interesting to me about this is that, and I don't, you know, I'm sure Ray McKinnon did it with purpose, is that she has so little grace in those two episode, uh, two scenes you mentioned. You know, she has so little grace when she she doesn't she walks up into the attic and she doesn't realize, oh my gosh, my mom is trying to move on. Instead, she's bitchy. Finally, like, don't finally don't be yeah yeah like. Don't be eBaying my, don't be eBaying my shit, you know, real catty and nasty. And she's the same way at the roller rink, showing a, a total lack of grace. I mean, I I was frustrated with Amantha at the roller rink because everybody thought Daniel did it. For God's sakes, he confessed. You you can't really hold it against Hannah's family that they thought the guy who confessed and was convicted. <laughs> did the crime <laughs> like it's not really their fault that they believed the cops and the jury and they didn't believe like the holdouts of amantha and her her, her the rest of her family who were convinced daniel didn't do it like why are you taking it out on billy you know like i i, I yeah. don't get that her her lack of grace there is out of step with how she's been. And then we see her out in front of Thrifty Town with her old high school friend Jenny and she's so graceful and tears come to her eyes because she's she's broken, you know. She's working at freaking Thrifty Town and um so I thought that was a little odd. Not not that uh, not not unbelievable at all. I mean, 
of course, all of us are, you know, we, we, we have way less grace with our own family, particularly our own mothers than we do with just about anybody else in the world. So sure. for her to lack grace with Janet is, you know, seems like normal. Um, and obviously Billy, Billy hurt her a lot. And it seems like what she's really mad about is that he beat up Daniel in the cemetery at the end of season one, you know, and almost killed him. But again, if, you know, if the guy got out of prison, whom you were convinced killed your sister, you also might kick the shit out of him, you know? So everybody's confused. And uh, I, I hope, I hope she can find some grace. Ted, you know, Luke, and by the way, shout out to Luke, our, our faithful listener, Luke Kirby. Um, who, and what an awesome episode last week with him on, huh? Oh yeah. That was good time. Top notch. Good time. He mentioned, yeah. And, and, you know, he, he mentioned a word that you and I have used in the past and that's, um, cipher. And he, Ted now has become kind Janet was a cipher for a long time, just kind of a shadow of a person floating around this house. Didn't really have anything to give. And now Ted has been gutted. You know, Janet, he knows Janet is thinking about leaving him. They've drifted apart. He doesn't have a tire store anymore. And I think he's probably looking. And and his son is like, I don't think I want to sell tires. I, You know, and here Ted is like, what the hell have I done for the last 20 years? I've sold tires at a store that my wife's deceased husband started and I don't even own it. My wife owns it. What have I done with my life? I've sold tires and Ted, his Teddy, his son is like, ah, dad, I appreciate it. I love you, but I'm good. I don't think I'm going to sell tires for the rest of my life. So Ted, I think situation. Yeah. He's like, Ted's without a purpose now, and he knows Janet's about to leave him. And so I thought the bathtub scene was beautiful because because any one of us who's been in a love relationship like that, we know, and, and they talked about it in the car on the drive to Nashville, you know, the resentment between the two of them. And I, I mean, I, I, I will tell you from personal experience, like I, that was that, that, built up in my own parents' marriage, and I can say this freely because I'm 100% sure that my mom does not listen to this podcast, the, the resentment between my parents had built, had had driven such a wedge. I mean, the chasm between them by the time my dad died a couple of years ago was so wide, it could not be bridged. And that happens with a lot of couples and so we got Ted and Janet admitting that they're resentful of one another as they're driving to Nashville to see Daniel. Okay. For Janet to knock on the door and to ask if she could come in and s- scrub Ted's back for Ted, who's naked in the tub to allow her in was so freaking beautiful. Ryan. I, I mean, I really, thought for for anybody who's watched this entire arc of four seasons that 
scene was one of the most poignant and potent scenes of the whole thing because you just know anybody who's been in a situation like that knows how much it takes to make that vulnerable move of saying, can I come in and scrub your back? Yeah, sure. Uh, I don't, I don't care if you've been married three years or 30. Yeah. There's, there's a way in which a couple who decides to commit together and, and, and truly loves each other and knows that they want to be with each other, even in the early days. And there's a fight there's all or disagreement or tension. There's the sense that you can let that fester because you know that you're with this person like, well, you know, it'll get resolved or, you know, whatever, but you can allow some of that certainty of being together to kind of breed. Yeah. Kind of feed that tension and feed that fight. So to be the person to take the initiative, to try to cut through that fog, to try to, you know, re-strengthen or build back that relationship is extremely vulnerable. You're right. It's very hard. And And it took something from both of them because it took something from Janet to to ask to come in and it took something from Ted to say, yeah, sure. You can come in and see me literally at my most vulnerable, like naked old man in a tub. In a tub. Yep. Yeah. It made me think about all the, the, you know, handful of arguments and, bigger disagreements that Amy and I've had over the years and, and you, you taking not the, the, the editorial, you taking the initiative to try to make amends. There's such a huge risk there because the hope is that that person will have the grace to open the door. Yeah. Right. Or to ask you to come in. So it's very, it's very difficult. And, um, I thought it, like you said, I thought it was just beautiful again. Right. Yeah. It, it's like a Mantha telling her story at the thrifty town training seminar. Mm-hmm. You can set this anywhere you want to. Mm-hmm. And it could be Ted in the bedroom reading a book or, but to put him in this position of, of uh, openness and vulnerability like that, it's just really inspired. And I thought it yeah. was, yeah. It was quite lovely. And I will tell you, second to that, I think, in this episode is the exchange between Teddy and Tawny at the apartment when the two of them realize that, and maybe maybe Tawny doesn't 100%, but they realize that they're going to be okay and yeah. that this is the best thing for them. I, I thought it was stunning. I thought it was, uh, and again, I, Clay Crawford, my goodness, like, one of his top five episodes, Tawny with a, and that kind of an assurance and a peacefulness that we've seen, haven't seen from her since the first season. But I, you talked about second naivete two weeks ago. And I think we see that on full yeah. display here. I feel like her confidence in what she's hearing from the Lord, as she would say, uh, her decision to yeah. go and serve people and help people uh, feels as hard, it feels hard one, as opposed to, like her, if she had just had this kind of normal upbringing, it's like, well, I'm going to go be a nurse or whatever. Like her, her realization of that this is her calling in life feels like a true calling. And as Teddy said, it's so believable. I can see it. And I just thought that was, you know what? I thought the same thing, Ryan dialogue and beautifully acted. I thought she, she's coming back to her faith. And in some ways, I don't want her to come back to her faith. 
You know what I mean? Like I want her interesting. to interesting continue continue to evolve. Uh, but it, it's also again not unbelievable. You know that she would have kind of strayed and doubted, and in some ways, you know, Daniel was the the one who he was the tempter. He was the one who's who's almost you know when he got out of prison was almost a nihilist. And he's the one who, although he allowed Tawny to get him baptized, you knew he didn't believe and that he's very cynical about belief and those who do believe. And he, you know, he was quite critical of her um, belief and, and almost trying to dissuade her from belief in it. And it did plant a seed of doubt in her head. But, um, now that Daniel's out of her life and it, it it she really is over Daniel I think which is I think good because Daniel I think was a terrible influence on Tawny and they, they were toxic for one another you might say he was a catalyst for getting her out of her marriage but but you know what I'm sad that Teddy and Tawny didn't patch it up because I think they could have I can Teddy see that Yep, Teddy tells therapy, Ted, yep. "We did, we did everything we could." I don't think they did everything they could. Not, not that, not that the show gives us insight into every therapeutic session they're in together, but just that did they try that hard, or had they given up before they even started therapy? And I mean, the therapist surely didn't try to convince them to stay together. So there yeah. was some sadness for me. I mean, when they. They're, they're going to go out for pizza and just hang out. Uh, I thought, man, are you ever going to find anyone better for each for for yourselves well, than each might. other? She might, but he no. He I may thought not. the opposite. <laughs> I thought Teddy would. I thought Teddy would. You know, <laughs> I thought Teddy's going to find some some uh, you know divorced mom with a couple kids who was a cheerleader at an SEC school and you know has got a little money in her divorce. <laughs> I think that's who Teddy's going to end up funny. with. That's funny. Yeah. I think Tawny is going to be a, I, I almost, when Tawny was like, I'm going to go join doctors without borders. I almost thought that Tawny was going to say, I think I might become a nun. I really did. I thought like, I'm going to jo- go join mother Stop Teresa's. It. I'm not kidding. If she were, if, if only she were Catholic, I think she would become a nun. I don't think Tawny needs sex or intimacy I think Tawny needs to help people, period. And I think Teddy needs a divorced mom who who is an SEC cheerleader. <laughs> just, just down to party. That's what I think. That's what I think. Yeah. Well, look, let's uh that scene obviously precedes Teddy confessing this divorce to his dad, which on one level, it's like, why is it so hard for him to say this? Because he's not afraid of his dad. He's just had this very heartfelt and, um, yeah. and honest conversation about creating this distance, almost like the conversation that Daniel had with Janet two episodes ago where he talks about, or maybe last episode where he tells her that, that he's not her problem anymore, you know, and you get the sense that Teddy's saying the same thing to Ted, which does, which makes his anxiety about telling Ted about the divorce a little puzzling even though you also know it's something that is deeply emotional for 
Teddy, which I think feeds into a little bit about your interpretation of them trying hard enough. I mean, there's a way in which you can yeah. potentially read that exchange between father and son where where Teddy is really sad that they, it didn't work out, which I guess he could mm-hmm. be. It could be and also realizing that they don't need to be together, but it's still sad. But maybe maybe there is some regret. Maybe there is some uh, lingering desire to try to work it out. But again, another powerfully acted scene and also slightly frustrating because of Ted's, I, you know, when Ted put down the shovel, I was like, just go hug him. Yeah. And, you know, and he didn't. And I, that felt like a real I know. opportunity. I agree. For, I agree. For these characters. I was disappointed that they didn't hug. I was disappointed even when they walked around the back. I thought, Janet, put your arm around Teddy while he's walking. He's afraid, you know. Hold his hand. Yeah, hold his hand and give him some. But man, this family doesn't really do that, you know. I mean, I guess. They're not a touchy-feely family. I guess they don't really do that. Yeah. Well, look, let's turn our attention to, to Daniel regarding his potential send off of Chloe and then obviously I think to close our discussion of this episode what we learned through the interrogation between Sandra and uh Sheriff Pickens. So yeah, yeah. Uh beautiful I love the setting. The the kind of bohemian setting of Chloe's apartment. Yeah. I think it's just such stark contrast to the halfway house where Daniel is and oh it just occurred to me we haven't even talked about the gut punch that is the first five minutes of the episode, which is Daniel recounting his rape. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, abuse it, on death row, but that episode, oh, it's, this is a part, I mean, this is in keeping with this, the relationship between Chloe and Daniel. We learn in the first of this episode that he heeds her advice. He is in therapy, honestly and painfully recounting this horrific episode of being, attacked and raped and shower in prison. And the episode is bookended. He's the, in the opening scene, he's talking to the therapist. And in the closing scene, he's listening to the playback of his session. And uh, we, we see that, that no matter what may happen with Daniel in terms of the case, it would there be a situation? I don't know if you, did some research on this or if you've thought about it, but it's likely we're learning that Daniel was not guilty of anything. And could the whole thing be vacated where he, his probation is lifted where he can just go really live a normal life in the sense of having the freedom to go and move about physical space because he tells Chloe, right? I'm 19 years and X number of months away from not having to check in with a parole officer, um, which limits his ability to be something to her. But regardless of that, we see, I think with these bookend, with the bookend of the therapy session that it doesn't matter what happens. I mean, he is, his road to recovery and healing is going to be long and painful. Yeah. uh, You know, obviously, where, where we left this was Chloe said, I think you should be in therapy. And Daniel basically said, F you and like walked out. And we didn't even know if 
Daniel and Chloe would ever see each other again. Daniel was pissed. You know, he was like, don't basically don't mother me. And this was the scene, uh, obviously, where Janet, his mother had actually come to town and met Chloe and they had had the three of them had had dinner together. And then after Janet leaves, Chloe kind of continues the mothering of Daniel and says, you need therapy. He says he doesn't want to relive it all. And then what's interesting is here he goes in therapy and it's exactly the tack that his therapist has chosen for him to relive it all. Like to relive it all moment by moment. And, and it is, I mean, you talk about Ray McKinnon and the slow burn, man, that scene of him recounting his prison rape, it lasts forever. It is so, Daniel tells it so slowly, so drawn out. There's one point that I thought was pretty cool where, you know, he slips into the past tense and the, the therapist says, talk about it in the pre you need to stay in the present tense and then we see you know a, a a quick shot of the of the phone recording it we don't know why well we find out like you say at the end because he's listening over and over to it until he becomes so bored with the prison rape that it no longer bothers him and you think well, will that ever happen that's yeah i wonder if that well i wonder if you're right that's the very question i was going to ask i don't know if in in your you know studies and different courses you've taken conversations you've had with colleagues i mean is that a i don't want to say is that like a preferred method of therapy i just i just wonder like how is how does that work i mean i remember a, a impactful book for me and and my education was serene jones's uh work on trauma and trauma mm -hmm. and grace which is from a religious perspective and a theological perspective but written with a uh, lengthy consultation with neuroscientists and therapists and all that kind mm -hmm. of stuff. You could tell that this was uh, a deeply resourced uh, work and the way that they talk about traumatic events is like, it's, it's so overwhelms you that it kind of, that memory kind of ping pongs around in your brain. It's not processed accurately. And so it can come back and haunt you and all that kind of thing and, and, and create the, the stress, the PTSD. And I wonder just it, as therapists and scientists work in this, what they find in that kind of facing it head on and engaging it over and over and over and the retelling of it, if that does process or help reprocess that memory, I just, I find that very interesting. And I wonder how that, how that works from a kind of a scientific, you know, neurological yeah. perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe I should, maybe that should be my next book I read. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I, I, but I, you it's know, very, very I, interesting to see uh, a character yeah. go through that. I think whether it'll work or not is almost beside the point, at least for the sake of the show. The, the, oh, of course. The, yeah. Yeah. You know, but, but the fact that Daniel would submit himself to another person, which we've slowly seen him do is great. And, and then there's just that little cool moment where peanut walks into their bedroom at the halfway house and pickle you know, says i got pickle. it you're getting your, pickle, you're pickle, getting pickle. your uh, yeah peanut <laughs> peanut is at thrifty town right pickle 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 oh what a pickle. what a beautiful uh little moment that is with his it joy is. over getting a job i mean my goodness yeah that was just so how sweet. hard these guys have to work yeah i think uh, well i was just gonna say you know the the chloe doesn't want to leave 
I, I'm torn. I'm torn. I'm torn with this relationship with Daniel and Chloe. But I also like, I remember being like, like Daniel totally in love with a woman. You know, I was in college, but totally in love with someone. And she wanted to be best friends, but did not want, you know, anything uh, romantic between the two of us and how hard and difficult and confusing it is and how much you want to maintain that friendship, but how in love you are with somebody. It's super tough. And I don't know why Daniel doesn't beg her to stay, but it, it you know, he 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 says, I, I work in a warehouse, I make $314 a, a week. Basically, why would anybody want to be with me? And that's where Chloe should say, who gives a shit how much money you make? This is not, your worth we'll is not work. your job. Yeah. yeah, we'll make it work. Like, what do you think I get paid for being a freaking artist who lives in a warehouse? You know, so I, I just, I don't know why they wouldn't just take a chance on it. But it just seems unlikely that Chloe, based on what the little we know of her, would take the safe route and move back to Ohio and live in the suburbs with her mom. That does not strike me as a Chloe move. So it seems a matter of convincing yeah. Daniel to stay and be a, a bigger, the, convincing him that he can indeed be a bigger part of her life. Yeah, which he might be able to do if yeah. the. What do you? So what do you think about this case? We learn a lot. We've a lot of stuff that you and I have uh, guessed about, you know, but we learn who Roger is. We learn more about the Nelms yeah. involvement and what happened. Um, it, but Pickens here seems to be, I mean, he's given pretty straightforward answers to Sandra's question. You know, painting a scene that makes it, was, it seem it was, like Daniel yeah, just got railroaded. Yeah. It was a it was a totally unsurprising turn that Christopher's dad is a powerful guy in town who knew folks and, you know, basically got Christopher off. And I just, I don't know. We still don't. I mean, we learned this from Scott teams or Michael Fuller many, many episodes ago. And we already know that the show will end without Daniel either being guilty or exonerated that, that Ray McKinnon did not want, even the writers don't, you know, did Daniel do it? And what, what was, what was Michael Fuller, Scott teams quote? It was something like, well, Daniel doesn't know if he did it. So how can we know if he did it or something like that? You know? Oh yeah. You're right. It's along those lines. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's like these people have all, I mean, of course, Samantha's convinced he didn't do it. But even Daniel doesn't know if he didn't do it. So how can Billy know if he didn't do it? How can how can Hannah's mom know if he didn't do it? Nobody knows if he did it or didn't do it. All we know is that Christopher Nelms was somehow, you know, never really questioned because his dad was a powerful guy, and that uh, Trey was probably lying that night that a bunch of the, these high school kids were probably lying that night about who raped Hannah and, and, you know, Trey went back. Now we know that Trey went back. Well, what did he go back and do? Maybe he went back and saw Daniel kill Hannah, or maybe he went back and killed Hannah. Like, you know, we don't, we just don't right. know. 
that George is forever silenced. Trey is never going to tell the truth. Daniel was so high that he doesn't remember what happened that night. The truth is not out there. To to twist the X Files. Uh, oh, there you uh, go. Like Another that. Killer the truth is Although not. I mean, if the if the, if the if the truth is out there in in the in the murder of Hannah, it will. It is impossible to ascertain. It is impossible to ascertain because even you Which know, feels no, like a a Ray McKinnon thing to do. To I think so. That's what I'm saying. That. So we're and what we're bucket. finding out is more from from the old sheriff you know we're finding out that the investigation was compromised again totally unsurprising we pretty much knew that all along it's going to be interesting to see how that lands how yeah how ray kind of ends this because next week is for us the last episode how we're left yeah. with that impossibility, I guess you'd say. Um, yeah, yeah. And and where that goes, I'm super excited to see. A little emotional. Um, I mean, we're mm-hmm. you know there are other things in the world to worry about at the moment, but this has been a good distraction and something to look forward to. And yeah. next week's finale, series finale, is. What we'll be discussing next week is a little bit longer of an episode as well, about a little over an hour, I saw. So we'll have 20 more minutes or so of content to discuss. Yeah, it's going to be good. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening. We really appreciate it. And uh, if you've been with us for 29 episodes for 29 straight weeks of Rectify, don't quit now. Stick with us. Don't quit now. If you stick through 30, you get a (laughs) t-shirt or or an Uber Eats gift card or something. I don't know. Right, right, right. You might win dinner with Luke Kirby. Just kidding. Just kidding. We don't have that to give away. (laughs) All right, everybody. Thanks for listening to Killer Serials. We will see you next week for the final episode of the story arc of Rectify. Bye-bye.